Hi, beautiful people, and welcome back to the Grab Life podcast. Grab Life is all about taking positive action towards a brighter and more vibrant future for not only ourselves, but for others too. Stories of overcoming adversity, great will, and or hope show us that it's never too late to grab life by the horns. The power is with us to change the things that need to change, and we do that by daring to live our truth, continuing to learn, and fight for what's right every day. I'm Avery Underwood, and I am your host. I am a health and wellness coach, and I'm here to empower you to live your most vibrant and well life for you through self-love, self-care, and the power of your intuition. In this episode, I talked to my friend Zoe, and she talks about her experience growing up as a Black woman in Sweden as well as the UK, what abolishing the police actually looks like, the importance of immersing ourselves in the Black experience, how self-care is so important in order to fight for a better tomorrow, and so much more. As always, like and subscribe to the podcast so you get instant notifications of episode releases for a bit of Monday motivation, just pause this right now and go and subscribe. I'll wait. Done? Okay, great. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Grab Life podcast. Today we have Zoe Daniels, who is a content and community manager and activist. And we have been friends for many, many years. I'm just so excited to have her on the podcast. So welcome, Zoe. Hi, thank you for having me, Avery. I'm so excited. Yeah, okay, let's get to it. So in the beginning, we will be doing a quickfire round called Grab and Go. So I'm going to read out um, two options and just pick whichever one comes to your head first that you would like to grab and go. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Still or sparkling? Uh, Grab still. (laughs) um (laughs) summer or winter clothes summer clothes nice me too cat or dog dog dms or trainers trainers pen or pencil pen (laughs) i like how you're like "Mm." (laughs) could be either one (laughs) um marmite or peanut butter Marmite. Yeah, yeah. Love Marmite. Pizza or pasta? Cool, that's a really hot ah, pizza. It's gotta be. Pizza, yeah. Good quality pizza, nothing beats that. Exactly. Tea or coffee? Tea. Yeah. What kind of tea do you like? I think my favourite is uh uh red bush. Yeah. Ooh, nice. A bit of really bliss. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Uh book or podcast? Book. Guacamole or salsa? Guacamole. Jeans or trackies? Jeans. Nice. Fair play. All right, cool. (laughs) Um, All right, so let's get into it. Um, Firstly, I just wanted to um, discuss a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. So the whole kind of premise of the conversation will be Uh, focused around Zoe's activism and, you know, fight for justice and equality. And I just wanted to ask you, Zoe, how have you felt this year about the mainstream media and internet finally catching up on the severity and prevalence of the injustices towards people of color? Um, I think the thing is, it's like, we've already had this wave. Like, we've got to remember that when Trayvon Martin 
was murdered, we had that wave across social media and Trayvon, Michael Brown, those names were trending, Sarah Bland, like those names were trending, there was massive uproar, there was massive protests. I think, and the media was aware and they wrote about it. Every single publication was writing about these protests. Um, I think what's happened now though, <laughs> is that they've sort of, I think now like society's reached a breaking point where the whole world has erupted and black people are standing up everywhere and people in general are standing up everywhere for equality. My feelings around it have remained unchanged. Like I've, I've, I don't feel like it's been increased cause it's always been there and I've always been exposed to it on social media. Like I've um, followed this uh, public, well, this group on Facebook, it's like killed by numbers. I think it's called, but it's just, it, it records, it records all the police brutality, um, lethal police brutality cases in America. So I've been getting like notifications almost every single day from that for the past five years. Um, so this wasn't like when I first heard about Armored Arbery and then um, Brianna Taylor and then um, George Floyd, I was just kind of like, for me, it was more of the same. The only thing that made the difference was the fact that George Floyd's killing was such an overt, like it was such an overt execution and show of racism. That's what that was, yeah. public lynching. Whereas before police could hide under the disguise of making a mistake, perceiving a threat with George Floyd, they couldn't anymore. Yeah. So do you think that's what the difference was this time was that it was like, I guess, because the video went viral and everybody could see it, like you say, this public execution. Do you think that that was really kind of what, I don't know, pulled on the heartstrings of everybody? Not that any other death should have been any less significant, but mm. yeah, I'm just curious about your, yeah. your thoughts on that. I think I think it was. And I think I think that video is what made the difference in kind of what made people stand up and say, hang on, they do treat black people differently. You wouldn't treat any human like that. I think even a base em empathetic level, like even if you are someone who, 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 who has the tendency to be racist or prejudiced, like in terms of like um, politically, even look at those people looking at that knew that that was wrong. There's no way that you can walk away from that and not think that that was wrong unless you're a complete psychopath, you know? And yeah. I, I only managed to watch, I think I managed to watch two minutes of it because it's just watching black death on screen. We have to see it all the time. Like it, it circulated constantly. Um, but again, it didn't, for black people, it was like, we don't want to see this kind of violence. We're used to seeing this kind of violence. For white people, they were like, you've got to check this out. This is horrible. This is like, you know, Black Lives Matter. They're not actually thinking about the black people that are going to be exposed to that, to that. And the media didn't think of that either. And they didn't think of the way that they were framing things, discussing things. Um, and fundamentally, the way that they report on Black Lives Matter still hasn't changed, you know. So the, the only time you see any change in true representation is when a black journalist is writing about it. And what exactly is the uh, representation that you are seeing? I'm I'm just I'm curious. Oh no, of course. Um, for example, Afua Hirsch, she's like the way that she discusses 
uh, Black Lives Matter and racism in Britain is so incredibly honest and refreshing. Um, it's kind of she exposes the real truth of Britain. So she does it very specific to what's happening in the UK. I think in America, it's just you've got so many, so many different journalists across the um, different publications. And I can't like the only one where I feel like I feel like there's such true representation of what's happening might be Huffington Post. Um, mm. Are you talking about like that there's not kind of like an empathetic um, way of reporting it? It's more kind of talking, I don't know, um, about it objectively rather than the emotion behind it. I mean, it's that and it's also not, yeah, it's not understanding what Black Lives Matter means and what the demands are. Right. For example, when they're talking about defund the police, they're not, they're just kind of painting it. I think a lot of white journalists are like, this is ridiculous. We need the police. We can't be thinking in this way. You know, that's, that doesn't, that doesn't ring true here in the UK. Whereas I'm, I'm in complete disagreement with that. And I'm sure a lot of activists in America are as well where we feel like we don't want to go back to a world where the police are our only option for like resource or justice. Um, mm, or for we, safety. Or for safety. We want to, I mean, they, they, yeah, they create more harm than actually like than protecting people. They don't reduce harm. They produce it. Well, especially for people of color, right? And I guess that's why the what the white perspective may not understand that is because if you've not been persecuted by the police for your whole life or shown that, you know, they're not this protective body, then, you know, of course, you're not going to understand why what defunding of police actually means and why it's important and why it's valid. Yeah. And I guess that but this is why then you need black people writing about that rather than the white journalists. Yeah. Why are those pictures going to them when they don't even understand what they're writing about and they're not doing the right research? Because mm. it's not very hard. It's not very hard at all. It's that they, <laughs> yeah. they're just putting their own sort of opinions into it. And, and that that in itself creates a lot of harm. And it's not just like in terms of like understanding whether the police produce more harm than reduce it. I think that you kind of if you just look at the most vulnerable people in our society, whether you're white or black, like the trans community, like they, they get, they completely vilified by the police. Um, and I think, uh, you know, people with disabilities, mental health issues, again, get attacked by police. Mm. Um, we forget about that. And that, and, and like the work, the working class areas get significantly hit by police as well. So that's whether you're white or black or predominantly they target, um, they target people of color and black people the most, but those groups, whatever color you are, if you're in a vulnerable community, part of a vulnerable community, you will be targeted and they will enact more harm than actually reduce it. Yeah. So what is the, what is the alternative solution to that? The defunding the police and like, what, what is the optimum solution I think the thing is, it's just trying to, it's putting our collective effort into imagining a better future. Um, so it's thinking of what can we put in place instead of prisons, instead of police, what can we replace that with? And that's not to say that we can like get rid of police today. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not, I wouldn't be mm. able to do that yet. Um, however, it's thinking, okay, so the money is all, go it goes mainly to these police stations to recruit more police officers why don't we look at 
putting that money into community projects and community initiatives? Why don't we look at putting that money into people's hands who are able to actually understand these issues that are happening in their community and are better equipped to handle those issues that happen in the community? And why don't we put our money into transformative justice policies and practices instead of putting our money into the police's hands because what what ends up happening is when you're like funneling money through these police stations to the police they profit off of crime so when they go out and you criminalize someone whoever they are that person stays in that system you know so that person when they get released it's likely that they're going to go back in because they just become a number right yeah they just become a number and then also you're just dumping people in and they just become another statistic yeah and you and and when you do that you're dumping people in into like in with like violent 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 people like with with, with people who've committed violent crimes um and you're just dumping someone who's like maybe stolen a banana from somewhere like this is this is the thing it's like or stolen like a sweet or whatever or or sold some drugs they're hungry right yeah and we should be looking at the root of these problems. That's how we start to dismantle the system. It's like looking at the root and how we address address those issues at the start so that it doesn't um, propel into the community or end up destructing the community or whatever. Because I think the way we're doing things now, we're just criminalizing people. We're not actually rehabilitating anyone and we're not understanding why these issues are happening. And, you know, did I answer that? Yeah, definitely. There- yeah, 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 totally. And I think there definitely just needs to be more of a humanistic approach to um, the way that the criminal justice system works in general, or at least like handing over certain issues to like health departments. Um, for example, like in Portugal, when they decriminalized drugs, right back in 2001, yeah. um, their rate of overdoses went down by 80% between then and now. Yeah. And what this means is that drugs aren't drugs aren't legal, right? Like they're yeah. not openly being like go out and like buy drugs. However, what they're doing is when people are caught with small amounts of drugs in the street is that they're then sending them to healthcare professionals to get rehabilitated and um get the help that they need, which is you know, obviously it shows that, you know, there are ways to tackle these issues which put the people at the center of it and like you say like target what's actually wrong and not just throwing people in jail mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, Portugal's such an excellent example. And I mean, we're seeing we're seeing similar countries respond. Like Uruguay decriminalized all their drugs as well mm. a few years back. And I think that now Orlando in America, they've, they've de- decriminalized drugs as well. They've moved towards that because that is transformative. Yeah, that's amazing. There's some amazing things that have happened out of the election that are um, getting a bit overshadowed. There's some amazing, huge steps that have been taken. And I think especially when we look at the war on drugs, that's huge for America. Um, I think people are just getting scared. You've got the heroin epidemic and the way that the people are responding to that is not, you can't be criminalizing people. It doesn't fix anything. Entire families have been lost due to the criminalization of their parents you know um and that's what's been happening to the black community for you know since since they got taken to taken to america <laughs> that's what's been um forever happening there vicious cycle um i think yeah we need to we need to be we need to be moving towards um a people-centered approach definitely 
Um, that's the only way to rehabilitate people. That's the only way to really reduce what we call crime. Because even when we look at crime, what is crime? What do we define crime? What is crime trying to put food on the table for your family? Is that cr- a crime? Isn't it? Cr- isn't it more criminal the fact that that person wasn't able to put food on the t- uh, um, on the table for their family due to the horrors of capitalism? <laughs> you know what what is more criminal what is more violent yeah the real criminal is inequality and lack of social mobility but that but that comes down to you know the institutional racism and um you know all these systems in place to keep people where they are so that the man can be on top yeah exactly this is the thing it's like it's so it's so that is to keep those structures in place, is to uphold patriarchy, the status quo, all of that. And now, finally, this year, there is a threat to that, and they are terrified. They are so scared. <laughs> and that's what Black Lives Matter, the fact that that's a simple statement that's made people think, oh my God, we didn't realize that they didn't. But when you saw that video of George Floyd, you knew, you knew. There's no way that you could deny it anymore. Um, and I'm seeing a change. I'm seeing people having different conversations I'm seeing people actually trying to take transformative steps um but obviously there's still that systemic problem which is what needs to be shattered um that's that's what needs to change um yeah was there like a kind of sense of frustration or feeling of frustration when um because I mean it definitely felt like the internet blew up around all this and I'm not sure if it was because of Um, a combination of lockdowns and coronavirus and people were really heightened and feeling empathetic and wanting community etc but the internet blew up around all this like unlike anything I've ever seen before like people who weren't interested or yeah for lack of a better word like weren't interested or like tuned into this the prevalence of these issues like all of a sudden everybody was posting about it everybody was talking about it and like yes I think it was an amazing step, but I can't even imagine how frustrating it must feel to be like, well, this is like what my life is. And this is what my community has been suffering with for hundreds of years. And like, yeah, well done, everyone. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> no, I am. Um, I actually was really frustrated because I was just kind of like, it's not new. And I was, I was having friends approach me doing, doing sort of like, can't believe that this has happened. I'm like, I've told you about this. You just didn't listen. <laughs> that, that, that was what I felt, felt about it. It was just like, oh, whoa, now everybody's woke all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just existed. Those people weren't interested. And what I want to see is those people be able to take, you know, responsibility of that and, and be accountable, be held accountable for that. So just be honest, be like, I wasn't interested because of my privilege, because I didn't need to be. Because as soon as this was at the forefront, if you weren't going to these protests, posting about it, you know, people would look at you badly. It would reflect on you badly. So when people post about it, you still don't know whether it has any meaning in it or whether they're doing it because of peer pressure. Um, and I had to reach out to friends personally and be like, why aren't you supporting our activist group? Why aren't you showing up at the protest? I reached that and I burnt so many bridges from that because I was just like, if I don't have people supporting me, but they're writing about Black Lives Matter and they've got a black friend in their life, but they're not supporting, you don't really care. You're just doing it mm. for clout. You're just doing it 
it's you know it's purely performative you support the people that are closest to you and the people on the ground you put your money where your mouth is you know show up to the protest sign those petitions share information call out your racist uncles and aunties you know there's and i just felt like a lot of this um a lot of social media at the time is a lot of virtual um, signaling and uh, yeah, just purely performative. I saw it with companies. That was the most frustrating part. It was companies and saying Black Lives Matter. Um, The company that I used to work for, Curb Food, they came out to say that. And I just thought, obviously with my, I'd had like a terrible, horrible racist experience there, which was completely systemic, filled with microaggressions. Yeah, and I called them out on it, and and that was at the time, and I was offered a settlement. So instead of actually dealing with those issues... It's awful, so I'm really sorry. No, it's okay, thank you. And the, what, the founder decided to call me and was like, I don't appreciate you saying these things, I want to understand exactly what happened. But she didn't really want to understand, because one, she delete A, she deleted the, um, the comment, there wasn't... So, so silently on social media and two, she kind of, when we did speak, she said, well, I don't want people thinking this of, of like, I don't want, want people thinking this of Curb. I don't want this. I don't want anyone speaking badly if it's not true. And I was just thinking, I was like, well, too fucking bad. It's your experience. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's often like, that again, that's the racial gaslighting that comes in it there. And it was like tinges of like threat of sort of being like if you do this something there will be I, I won't tolerate this there there are next steps to this and I just thought I'm not scared of you anymore I'm not I'm not holding back I'm gonna be open and clear about this because if you come after me like I've got the evidence <laughs> I've got loads of people that will back me it's just like it's also it's just not like don't even don't even try. And I, and, and I was like, I'm not going to accept performative allyship. And I still stand by that. And what they did that day, posting about Black Lives Matter was purely performative. They have not taken any constructive steps in the way that they operate. And the entire company is white. Like, it's like they've got one person who's a person of color in a modern street food company. How does that happen? <laughs> yeah. So when did, what ended up happening with that? Was that it? Was that the end of the end of the dispute yeah um, the thing is, I didn't want to really open up this old wound because it just it really traumatized me and it's your energy as well right it's like yeah exactly it's my energy as well and I just think I just felt like you know there's not there's a lot that there's a lot of good that I can do with my energy and that that was not one of the things like I wanted to move on I wanted to put my energy to some good use I wanted to help other communities and always like obviously lend my support to other people who go through that same thing like if they ever need advice and they're facing microaggressions at work racism at work to be able to know how to handle that I know that now so that for me was a good experience they taught me to be tough (laughs) you know yeah yeah I can't believe I haven't said that to you yeah, no, I mean, we haven't, yeah, we haven't spoken in ages. It's been so long. Yeah, so, so long. Um, Just to go back to your, like, point before about, um, you know, people holding themselves accountable who may be showing up online and not supporting, mm. you know, maybe their black friends or whatever. Um, 
a really great book to work through would be Layla F. Saad's uh, Me and White Supremacy book because yeah. you go in on your past and all of the things that you may have like forgotten about or you know just little microaggressions that you've contributed to throughout your whole life because even like you say quote unquote woke white people um would have created some sort of harm at some point throughout our lives it's just what happens when we're born into a racist society um you know it's not everybody's fault you know, in their younger years, but we have a responsibility to look back and reflect so that we can do better going forward. No, definitely. I think that that was beautifully said. And I think that she, that book is definitely something that people need to read, but they also need to delve into. So not just anti-racism books is to fully understand the black experience and put, put yourself in our shoes. You need to be reading like our stories you know, so it's not just to do with racism, mm. it's to do with us as people um, and our community yep. um, across the diaspora. So that doesn't mean, like, if you're in Britain, you're just reading British black authors. No. Start reading about, um, yeah, start reading about people in Africa. Start be, re- reading about the different African revolutionary leaders. Start reading Shimanda Ngozi. You know, like, get in, you know, get into those stories to understand the experiences that we go through as well. And that's what makes you truly empathetic, I think, because we're kind of now what's happened with Black Lives Matter is people are like, oh, I'll read this anti-racism book and then I'll be fine. And it's like, no, it's going to take you yeah and then i'm and then i'm not racist yeah (laughs) and the thing is it's gonna take you till the day you die so if you're white you're gonna be doing anti-racism work it's a journey exactly it's a journey and that's for everyone like i say it from like my own like sort of queer journey like i'm still learning about all the different identities in terms of like just their stories uh, and their needs and their wants and mm. stuff and it just and learning about and what kind of language you use and stuff and I constantly slip up I constantly slip up but thankfully I've got friends around me that pick me up again and teach me and educate me and call me out and all of these things but that work is gonna take until the day I die and I am okay with that as long as you're willing to put in that work and realize that this is not a quick fix and be open to being criticized. Like I am completely and utterly open to being criticized. But leave your ego at the door. Exactly. You have to leave your ego at the door. You have to be able to have somebody like openly say, you know, that's not okay. And you go, okay, instead of fighting back, be like, no, 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 I didn't mean it, blah, blah, blah. Listen to that person, take it on board, and then learn from it. Exactly. That's the biggest that you know that's actually like one of the biggest teachings you can take is like leave your ego at the door because the ego is what causes white guilt white fragility as soon as you start talking about something that was racist and the person and the person will react being like I didn't mean to do that like really just flipping out I'm not racist so I don't know why you'd say my grandfather was black because even that that even like I just feel yeah it just gets people just get so they get so upset by being called racist rather than the fact that they've done or said something racist. Yeah, there is a total difference there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But I think people, I think people view them as like two, one of the same. But they're, but they're not. Like you can try, you can be actively being 
trying to be more anti-racist and still slip up and say racist shit or say transphobic stuff or whatever. Yeah. An issue with the fact that we're constantly evolving and changing. So when we talk about racism, we didn't like the level that we're discussing it now, systemically, institutionally, all these, and also all these different words are coming up and phrases, unconscious bias, you know, like white fragility, white guilt, um, weathering. There's like so many different academic terms that you may not be familiar with unless you're working in those fields. And if you're not working in those fields, that journey is going to be longer for you. But just because you've got an academic understanding doesn't mean that you're still not, you're, you're absolved of racism and, and, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just, I think for the people that continuously slip up when it's to do with semantics, is to not be too hard on themselves and just keep on trying and keep on putting in that work and, you know, and, and just understanding that it's all part of the journey. Being called out is all part of the journey. It's how we grow up. Um, that's how we grow. That's how we evolve. And like, you know, I've always felt like with you, Avery, for example, some some stuff that we've been through, you've been so honest with me. You've been so honest with me about stuff where I've just been like, Oh, maybe I need to, look at that again and maybe not do that next time you know <laughs> and, and, and I really appreciate it. Um, but I love that that's how you should be with people um, but people take it too personally this is the problem people make it about them which is just like ah oh, which is so, that, that is so incredibly frustrating when people are just making it about them when it's not about them it's about the issue yeah I mean, like you say, that's been like, I think that's been one of the biggest kind of things that's I feel like has come out on social media is that a lot of um, white influencers or people on Instagram or whatever were, were framing the conversation kind of around them and their anti-racist work. And, you know, they were reading the books and they were doing this, they were doing that and not doing enough to actually amplify melanated voices um for for to educate people in from the person the first person point of view yeah 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 I feel like this is the thing like I think a, a lot of people when this happened saw it as an opportunity to kind of commandeer the movement as well and didn't pass the mic um and you see it with people who you know, like the the aspect of like a lot of people leading the movement in the UK, for example, are lighter skinned. Um, so there's an issue of colorism there again, and and not yeah, and not passing the mic again. And it's like people talking about passing the mic, but they're not passing the mic; they're still talking. And it's kind of like the people that are mostly affected by, by this are the women with kinky hair and dark ass skin. I'm one of those ladies, so I can say that. <laughs> but you know, it's just like those are those are the people that are <laughs> like and we're just having we're having like an uphill battle battle, like in terms of everything in every single industry as well. Like the beauty industry's favors lighter skin. And wherever we go, we're in the most danger. We're seen as the least acceptable. And that's still I feel like that's another battle that is that needs to be had within the movement. It's like People are having these conversations, but they're still not understanding them. Um, and they're still not putting in the actionable work to change that. So basically, keep doing the work. You'll be doing it forever, essentially, is the take home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you'll be doing it forever. 
and try and read about from a variety of point of view experiences and from all over the world, etc., to get the most well-rounded point of view. Yeah, exactly. Is that a good synopsis? Well, yeah, listen to people's um, world perspectives. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Okay, um, so I wanted to discuss a little bit about, you say that you were born in Sweden, but your heritage is Liberian, Nigerian, Italian, and English. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about what it was like growing up in Sweden as a woman of color. Yeah, um, so I would say growing up in Sweden, I mean, because I, I was a kid, I, I, I was only there till the age of 11, um, and it was it was fine. I didn't realize that I was different to anyone else um, until I basically I did have one incident which was really racist. Um, I had these kids chase me, spitting at me, throwing rocks, um, trying to get me to call the N word. But you know what? It hasn't even scarred me, which is really I, I don't, and I don't know why. I think it's because maybe I didn't even realize that that was really why they hated me because I was I had a different skin color and I think that you know when I moved to the UK that's where I really learned racism I was called the n-word at in school by this boy and I never like he called me the n-word and the head teacher was behind him so I never saw him again after that like literally he was gone oh my god yeah wonder where he is now and then he um (laughs) hey black lives matter (laughs) and and then I had like a incident where this old lady told me to get in the back of the queue because she thought it was the freaking uh 1960s or whatever and we're in America (laughs) so she was trying me to get in the back of the queue and then I was I was refusing because I knew she was being racist and at one point she was like Mm. She's saying all this stuff under her breath, and her husband was like, Deirdre, not here. And I was like, <laughs> I just turned around. I was like, Deirdre, not anywhere. Not anywhere. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, mate. I was like, I'm not even, because I was 16 at the time, and then she threw her walking stick at me. And she was lucky, because I was 16. I was. Yeah, I was at that age where you're a bit of a shithead. I would, I could have taken that walking stick and run, but I didn't. <laughs> so I was a polite 16 year old. So I just kind of went. I was just like, "You're lucky that you're this old, Deirdre. You're lucky." Um, yeah, but then I'm like, "What do I really mean by that? I've never been in that situation before." You know, empty threats, empty threats. They happen a lot. <laughs> um, but I just think, yeah, that was that was sort of my experience. And then when I came back to Sweden that's when I realized how different I was to everyone else around me. Um, that's when I felt like I was sticking out like a sore thumb because in England, yes, I'd been taught what racism really meant in this country, but at the same time, I had also had the freedom to be myself, which is so odd. Maybe that's more of a presence of um, like our community is far more multicultural here than, than what Sweden is. So in Sweden, you stick up, stick out like a sore thumb and all the tv like all the entertainment media everything that you're taking in is dictated by white people what's bad in sweden is the fact that they've got a far right party that are sitting in parliament that's bad um and they're like literally neo-nazi um 
and they've got they've got migrants voting for them for like and people who have emigrated to Sweden voting for them um, and people of color voting for them so that that to me is really really alarming and worrying and the fact that they can sit in parliament it happens all over though it happens here it happens in america yeah and it does and i think the thing is in england england was allowed to pretend for a very long time and now we're finally being like we live in a fascist country there is no point being around the bush about it anymore we live in a fascist country that is what's happening it's not on the rise it is here and it's going to get worse. And the only way to fight that is to demand change, is to put the right people in parliament or just abolish the whole damn thing. Because <laughs> that's where I'm sort of coming from now. It's kind of, yeah, I'm just like abolished. And what does that look like? And I just think that we need, I just don't think what's happening right now in the world is acceptable. And I don't think that what happened in my childhood living in Sweden was acceptable. I don't think moving here and living in this society was acceptable. Like just the way that both countries operate is unacceptable because they do not thrive on equality. Um, and, and like, you know, societally, Sweden Sweden is, 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 is an equal, like on a societal level, but on a sort of economic level it's equal um you know but then also as in there's there's not as much economic inequality you mean yeah exactly like there's more hope and they have the whole like socialist thing down like the healthcare and like free university and schooling and stuff right yeah so they've got a welfare system there which is like it is based on you know it's it's a socialist thing but it also involves a lot of like sort of capitalistic ideology um Mm -hmm. just because of the way that it's structured and stuff but it is way way better there than here but then also sweden's welfare system hasn't really been tested because now that covid happened yeah sweden went with the herd immunity very controversial very controversial and i don't agree with it um and basically what they demonstrated like because they didn't they've demonstrated that they were too scared to go into full lockdown because of the pressure that that may have had on the welfare system. Because I think that it would have been, yeah, they would have had to give universal basic income to everyone. They would have had to do that. Um, And I'm not sure whether they were prepared to do that, even though they're one of the biggest arms deals traders in the world, so could have definitely afforded it. They put profit over lives, just like England. Yeah. Universal basic income is such an interesting concept and one that we definitely don't have time to go into today, but um, <laughs> very interesting. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So in your little blurb that you sent to me, you said that discussing abolition and imagining what a better picture looks like in practice is the driving force behind your activism. So what does a better tomorrow look like for you? A better tomorrow for me looks like no prisons, no police, and no borders. That's what I want to see. Interesting. No, because like no borders would also help the environment because you wouldn't be relying on like, there would be no such thing as deportations. The land is everyone's, you know? Um, 
no police. We'd we'd, we'd go for, we'd stop criminalizing people. We'd start, we'd reduce harm. We'd um, take away power structures. This awful hierarchical thing that we have in place, and it would reduce. It would take away oppression. Will hopefully reduce it at least. Um, no prisons. Exactly the same thing. Prisons have just left. The fact that their existence shows that slavery still exists, and that and that is for everywhere. Like not just America, not just what the thirteenth showed us. The, the UK profits off of prisons as well, so they're profiting off of slave labor. I'm just, I guess, I'm just kind of curious as to like, because it's such a huge issue and it's such a, it's such a huge issue on a global scale. And I suppose I'm just curious as to like what, how exactly it could happen I guess well so I don't think that this is something that will happen tomorrow I'm not sure whether it will happen in our lifetime either Mm. but the way that this happens is that we start approaching things differently with with these things in mind so the policies that we put in place aren't reformist policies for example the police have now said or Sadiq Khan has said that he is going to enforce the Metropolitan Police to recruit 40% 40% of BAME applicants. Well, didn't they say that they were going to do that after the McPherson report um, was published back in, when was that? Like the early 2000s after the Stephen Lawrence murder? Yeah, they did. And they and they they didn't really because, you know, people of color don't want to work for them. And also that doesn't fix the issue because the people that are predominantly affected are black. So when you're saying BAME, you're saying black, Asian minority ethnic, which includes travelers. So you're not saying that's interesting. Yeah, and loads of people don't know that. Um, that's just exactly so that kind of erases their identities as well. The t- who are you trying to protect? Because if black people are the ones that are predominantly stopped and searched, then surely it would be black officers that you'd want in there. But the problem is. It's not the pe- it's not just the people that they're recruiting. That's not the issue. It's the entire application process. It's the training process. It's 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 rotten from the core inside out. And I have sat in there. I have sat with those police officers. I've had conversations with them. Honestly, the stuff that I have seen this year just demonstrates that it's not enough to diversify. Um, there needs to be representation. Those people that you get there, they need to be from those communities. If you're gonna, yeah. if you're gonna say you're recruiting these people to protect black people or to reduce racism, you need to be recruiting from those communities and investing in those communities. How exactly, like, how exactly would that look though? Like, based on the fact that you know the police, uh, like you say, predominantly stop and search, um, you know, black black people on a large scale. There's a crazy statistic, like, in the UK, four out of a thousand people to get stopped and. St- Four out of a thousand white people get stopped and searched, but it's thirty-eight out of a thousand for black yeah. communities. So when when you're from a black community from these areas, and you know you don't trust the police, you don't trust them to protect you, and you know whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, how then would they end up wanting to work for the institution? Like, what wh- what is the gap there? How do you how do you recruit? Well, this is the thing. I wouldn't want to. I, I honestly don't think the police should exist. So I wouldn't want right, to. Right, yeah, okay. There we go. Then that's a good thing, like, for people not want, 
not wanting to work with them because they don't trust them. They understand that as soon as you put on that badge, you're not representing your community anymore. So, so the whole recruiting thing, that's another reformist policy that just causes more harm. Because again, they've started erasing people's identities. So like, if we're fighting for this better future, we need to like, Miriam McCarver Carver says it the best, um, an abolitionist and geographer. I think she's a geographer. Not sure. Um, she basically says, like, kill the cop in your head. Think of other ways to respond to issues. Like, think of other ways. And it's just, and, and that's not to say that they are, all have the answers, but abolitionists have got a framework in place. They've thought about mm. where the money can go. It's not that they're just dreaming this out loud. This has taken years, decades of work of people who have been on the ground doing community organization, opened up justice centers. Like we've already got somewhat of a framework in America for this, where like different communities, like the trans community, they're not calling the police when there are issues. Mm, yeah. They help each other. And that's through mutual aid. Um, you know, and that's through transformative justice policies. There's so many groups that are governing themselves. Like even if you look at certain activist groups, if there's ever been any issues with um sexism or let's say sexual violence, they've it's been survivor-led the way that they've approached that and they've made sure that that person is every step of the way, but that person believes in transformative justice as well and doesn't believe that punishing someone will make it better. It doesn't bring back, you know, when a murderer kills someone, it doesn't bring that back that person by chucking them in prison, does it? Yeah, no. It doesn't do anything to society. It doesn't make, and, and the whole idea of making you feel better, what you feel better because someone's get, like, someone's, um, experiencing more harm i definitely think that there are some instances where people should be locked up for good like um serial killers etc like sociopaths who you know have shown and proved time and time and again that you know they are not kind of able to be out in society without killing people um but i think there's a very specialist cases um and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. Um, I so I actually kind of I I I disagree to a certain extent. Okay. Um, because I don't believe I you know sociopathy. That's a mental illness, isn't it? Yeah. So true. I, so okay. I, yeah. So I think from that perspective, I think we need to stop picking and choosing what we're comfortable with. Mm, okay. Okay. Time. And it's like it's really going within. Not to say that like obviously like. Like, I was asked this the other day. It's like, what would you do if your child got killed? Obviously, I don't have a child, but uh, but would you not want that person locked up? And I was just thinking, well, it's not going to give my bring my child back. Mm. I'd want to understand why the person did the, what they did and make sure that it never happens again. And I don't believe that that is through locking someone up because that person can go and, on to kill someone else in prison, you know? Oh. And, and, and that person might have been completely innocent. I guess the issue is just far more complex really isn't it because I mean I don't know you probably watch a lot of true crime um (laughs) I do I do as well and you know you do get these cases like you say of you know somebody's child gets murdered but the murderer had hit like I I say he but you know let's not be prejudiced um whoever it was that murdered the child um they may have grown up in an abusive household like blah 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 like you say so therefore that would be the reason why they yeah 
like gap the issue is definitely far more complex yeah exactly so much more complex and that's again we need to be using a people-centered approach and we need to be looking at people's individual issues and why they came to be that way um you know and it's just and I don't feel locking someone else up in a jail is the right way to go about this I think if we're going to look at reducing harm locking someone back in doesn't reduce harm it it, it doesn't yeah, they need to learn why that was wrong or get the help that they need. And it's hard. It's not going to be easy. And it's not like, I'm honestly not saying that this is a thing that we could do tomorrow. But I think that the people that we should be listening to is people that have been looking at abolition and imagining a better future and putting those frameworks into place because those people exist. Miriam Kaba is like, honestly, the dopest person ever. People should check her out. She's incredible. Um, and Adam Elliot, I think his name's Adam Elliot. I'm really bad with names and remembering things. But Adam Elliot Cooper, that's it. Yeah, he's fucking brilliant. He's doing incredible work um, in uh, London. He's part of Black Lives Matter. Like those kind of people, look at their frameworks. Look what look at what they're saying. And those frameworks are in place. You know. Um, it's just working towards that and it's putting in reformist abolitionist policies like so a reformist abolitionist policy would be to end stop and search so you're not saying to just immediately like shut down the police station you're saying a step to get there is to end stop and search first stop and like put policies in place that help protect the most vulnerable people now and start working towards abolition because abolition involves unlearning. That's how we get yeah. there. It's unlearning all these things that we've been told we have to have. Why do we have to have the police? Why do people steal? What is crime? What does justice really look like? What do we want from all of these things? It's, it's unlearning what we've been told and imagining something better. Yeah. Because um, I refuse to believe that this is the society that we all want to live with. And if we're going to be fighting for equality, prisons, police, and borders are the direct opposite of that. That's not equal. Interesting. Oh, lots of food for thought there. Um, and a nice, a nice follow-on question would be, so what does equality really mean to you? So, whew, so I guess equality, equality for me means having access to all the same things like having it means accessibility it means um opportunity um yeah I think that and just having like the most basic things in life that like you've got access to that that's what equality means for me all the same opportunities all the same chances the same support you know that's what equality means to me it means representation it means being able to see yourself on screen, no matter what color, ability, state you are, identity, whatever. Um, it means not being scared of going in and applying to like some high flying job, <laughs> but also having access to anything that you want to do. Like anything that you want to do should be possible under equality. And I think like if you wanted to become a doctor, you're able to become a doctor. If you wanted to be a football player, you're able to become a football player. Obviously, there's skill and all of those things, but 
right now everything is tied into um, is tied to capitalism which creates a very unequal society people don't have access to the same thing they don't start off the same way in life um and then that just continues throughout their lives and i mean you've probably seen the video because it's circulated around my facebook like many 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 times but essentially it's a video of this teacher and he's got a line of kids from various ethnic backgrounds and you know he's reading out various um kind of like social cues like if you are from a household where your parents are still together take a step forward if you are from a household where both parents have um, a source of stable income take a step forward if you are from a household where you always have food on the table and in the cupboards take a step forward and basically like all the kids who have those things take a step forward and for everything that the other kids don't have they take a step back and then he basically is like now look around to where you are like if if is this a fair race in life if this is the race of life like if i'm stood here with ten dollars who's gonna grab this ten dollars first and everyone like looks around and like it's it's a really powerful video because it you know it does just go to show how much this race that we called life is dictated by so many different like social factors um so yeah anyway I, i'm not sure if you've seen it before um i haven't seen it but i have done i don't know whether they call, like so we called it the privilege test and there was this um event or not event protest that we had in hastings hastings rally against racism so that's in east sussex and over a thousand people came and it's predominantly like i'm talking 97.9 percent white area um, and those people showed up in full force to support and understand and learn and um we did the privilege test where people were asked a series of questions um, that seemed normal on the outside but then when once you delve into it you start to realize something and it was like things like have you ever been stopped by the police um have you ever been um said uh have told no when looking at a house have you ever like like really basic things and with black people like we almost had all of our fingers up the entire time whereas white people realize like literally white people were like never had that never have that never had that never had that living like very privileged lives um you know that's in that's an inequality right there in a nutshell yeah and it's such a such a powerful thing to do it in a group um in a group setting where you can kind of see and look around and feel like wow and really feel the impact and the energy that that has on like the two separate groups yeah and when you see your friends like when you see someone that you know and, you see, and you're next to them and then they start kind of just being like oh yeah shit I've never had that I've never had that I've never had that and and you just you look at them and you're like whoa I never realized I think a lot of my friends had that they were like I never realized that happened to you because they were quite basic questions so it's not stuff that I would have gone to tell a friend about either necessarily um because I'm just like oh that's just my life but obviously now I'm saying no more <laughs> everybody knows yeah exactly yeah I think this is the thing where, where like yes I'm frustrated about what I'm seeing all the time but mainly I'm just like thank god it's all out in the open I don't need to pretend anymore yeah I'm, pretending. I'm being unapologetically myself and if and because now I understand even I understand if you don't accept that if you don't accept me 
for who I am as the black woman that I am, that's coming from a racist place or whatever. It's coming from a prejudiced place. Um, so it's just, you know, that's like, I'm no longer, I'm no longer accepting the things that I can change, basically. It's not, um, that. I think that's the way to move forward with this. And I think that everyone can make a difference and everyone can do their part in Black Lives Matter. Like that means that if you're sort of, if you're working in an area, in a company that's predominantly white and you're seeing that there's inequality there, you stand up and you help your colleagues. If you don't do that, you're comp you're as complicit with those people in enacting it and you're part of that systemic racism. There's nothing- Everybody needs to be brave and stand up. Exactly. And it can't be, it can't be on our shoulders every single day time because we're standing up for everyone else when we stand up we're picking everyone else up when people are going out there fighting like to abolish prisons and police like we know that we're going to be setting loose people who are really violently racist but we're doing it for the good of society and we're doing it because we're like we can see hope there and we can see that that those people just need education they need guidance like why are they the way they are why are people so incredibly why do you find a lot of racism in working class communities for example why does that happen is that lack of education is that lack of opportunity is that lack of in some places up north it's lack of not um you know being in a mixed community so you're not being exposed to different cultures there are reasons why reading the sun <laughs> reading the sun like we the, our government and our society has a responsibility to make sure that no one falls under uh, in those cracks and right now our government is peddling racism like overt racism and trying to stifle people's education that's what's happening now. That's, you know, above everything, that's what I'm most frustrated about. I'm frustrated that we've got a government that are incredibly fascist. We've got a complete fucking, sorry, sorry, excuse me. No, 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 swear away. We've got an absolutely awful, awful prime minister. Literally the, he's like literally the worst, worst piece of shit ever. <laughs> Yeah, little Trump minion. And the thing is, he's even more pathetic than Trump. I didn't think that that was possible. I didn't think that was humanly possible. But here we are in its human form. This, this, is, this is it. And, and he is, honestly, right now, I feel like he is the face of everything that is wrong with Britain. But Boris Johnson is that. But also, these issues didn't exist before him. It will not end with him finishing. Like, it will not. So that's also really important to recognize is that he didn't start it. He He's not going to end it. And all he has done, which I am thankful for, strangely enough, is he's exposed. He's exposed the entire government, including Labour, as being a bunch of racists. And I did see, I saw the other day that, and I saw that Biden um, basically called out Boris Johnson for racist comments that he made about Obama back when, back when Biden was the vice president of the United States um, and said, you know, we are, we back Britain, but we do not back Boris Johnson. Yes. That's what's going to be happening now, but he still hasn't, he still hasn't like, um, he's still not giving in, <laughs> which is so frustrating. Well, yeah, because he's a fucking moron. Anyway, that's a topic for another time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we could talk about this for hours. Um, okay, cool. So, 
In the blurbs that you sent to me before, I love how you said that community is the driving force of your activism and that positive action, the positive action you do is to make sure that you're strong enough to help others. This is my whole ethos um, throughout my coaching and that you have to learn to take care of yourself um, as number one before you can even think about helping others. So how do you stay strong enough in order to help others in your community? Um, so that is, so with that, I just make sure that I've, I've got things in place that make me feel good. Um, like I've got the basic, like my basic needs are met. So I'm able to put food on the table. I'm able to, you know, be able to like, I, I make sure that my anxiety is not through the roof. So I'm exposed to like, I've got chat, I've got downtime basically. So I just make sure that I can practice self care and that I'm able to actually take care of myself. Like just doing the basics of paying rent, putting food on the table, paying my bills, having my phones to be able to contact people, just make sure that all those things are met. Then I'm able to help others. Cause like my mom says, how are you meant to, how are, meant to, how are you meant to help other people? Like, how are you meant to carry the world on your shoulders if the if your knees are weak? Like, there's no oh, way. That I love that. that. Like, literally, she told me that last year because I broke down just about all the awful things that are happening in the world. And I was having loads of issues at the time. Um, I was having, like, just housing issues, financial issues, work issues. Um, and they'd all hit me at the same time and I was completely lost and but at the same time I was trying to like make sure that I was supporting my community and I wanted to get involved in volunteering and what ended up happening is I removed myself from all of that those things and I concentrated on getting myself a job moving into a place where I felt secure and safe and surrounding myself with people that I love and um and people who love me um and just making sure that all my basic amenities were met. Once that was in place, I started building myself back up and like making sure that I had the capacity to practice self-care. So you're not filling every single moment of your spare time helping others, which was what I used to do. And then I used to just burn out. People pleaser. Yeah. And I'm just, I don't say, I find it very hard to say no. So I'm just constantly like, yep, 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 yep. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> in a trap. And that hasn't, I haven't fine tuned that yet. That hasn't come to It's me. a journey, babe. It is. So one of the biggest things I do each week, without fail, I have my Wednesday and I have my Sunday bath. So I pamper nice. myself up and I like literally I'll put a face mask on I've got my my bath is so dope like I put, yeah I put in I put like a bath bomb in um I just I make it as like wonderful as possible and then I put I'll stick like something to watch like a film or a show that makes me feel good and I'll literally just like I'll just chill and it's just me and like what I enjoy watching and just, it might be trash TV, Emily in Paris. I burnt oh, through that. Loved that. I actually loved it. I, I loved it. <laughs> loving watching shows about white people having like a good time in their life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Escapism. And I'm just like, oh my God, that's how the other half live. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Emily in Paris like really gave me that. And also it was funny seeing them take 
like this out of French culture um, just because it is a pretty, it is a very racist country, politically speaking. And, yeah. Um, my experience when I went to France was a lot of that shit that they show in the show. So oh I was my like, God. When loads of people started telling me about it, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like that. <laughs> I was like, maybe it's not like that, where they just brought out the baguette every time. I was like, yeah. I don't know if that's quite right. But I was like, the croissant, though, I'm on that. <laughs> what a good show. It's all, it's all about the bath, though. Like, that's literally, like, my sacred time at the end of the day. Like, get into the tub and just, oh, it it's honestly, just so good. It just washes everything away. Um, and I just think that it just makes you feel like it, it's, a ti- it's, a, it's a time where you can practice mindfulness as well. And I think... For people that str- if there's anyone out that you know that struggles from um, anxiety and stuff like that, or struggles meditating to combat that anxiety, meditating in the bath is like an excellent idea because you're doing something, you're doing something anyway. So if you're not someone that watches TV in the bath or reads, then that's the perfect moment to meditate. <clears throat> so I'd definitely recommend that for anyone, and just with that as well, just practicing spirituality um it guides you it gives you strength um doing yoga gives you strength it allows you time to decompress and think about your body what your body needs Um, and just meditation is just practicing mindfulness it's just an excellent way to sort of build up strength and fight things with a clear head I wish you could see me through the screen, but I've literally been nodding throughout this whole like hour long conversation. (laughs) Um, So just to wrap up, do you have any take home points or words for the audience about how we can and must keep fighting for a more equal future? Yeah. um, I think that start small, start small at first. So I think the biggest thing is just educating yourself like in order for us to achieve equality, we need we need to do this through collective action and education. So it's to start educating yourself and actually listening to people from those communities. So if you're wanting to fight for environmentalism, don't listen to the white people who destroyed it, <laughs> who destroyed the environment. Listen to indigenous communities and indigenous activists. Um, if you want to you know, support Black Lives Matter, listening to the black people leading that, the black people on the ground, grassroots organizations, um, and stop listening to politicians. Another, Another thing is like, join your local organizing group. There are so many around, um, literally there's Facebook pages with them now. Um, there are so many different ways for you to get involved or start your own. Just get a group of friends together who want to do some good in the world, find out what your community needs and start supporting that community. Um, I'll use like Hastings as a great example. When Marcus Rashford was, when his proposal was rejected by the government um, and the government decided that they were going to go ahead with starving kids, they just love doing that. Um, What ended up happening there was... um, yeah, what ended up happening there in Hastings was um, a few of my friends responded by creating a sort of mutual aid group called Hastings Food Action. And then they started distributing um, food parcels and they just set up a PayPal and they were like, can people 
support this. We will deliver this food to people's doors. We'll create food packages that they need for the week or for their lunches or whatever. Um, and the whole community came together and helped them. Um, oh, and, that's and so the, amazing. And that was just, yeah. And it's just, it's just people being like, okay, so he's doing this. Hang on. We live in the most, one of the poorest areas in the countries. What can we do to help our community? That is fighting for equality. That is making sure that no child goes hungry. There's so many simple ways and every town now should have a mutual aid group. Join it. Join that mutual aid group. Lend your skills. If you have a bike, you can bike food. You can do food deliveries. You can drop off medication to people's houses. There's so much you can do with that. You know, you don't need a car to make these things happen. You don't need a lot of money to make these things happen. If you've got a skill, you've got spare, like sewing, you've got spare cloth around the house, make some free masks for people in the community. Why not sew some masks for homeless people if they're not, if they don't have access to that? They need to keep safe too. Like, you know, it's all of these things. Is There's so much that you can do. Just look at what your community needs and step up. Don't wait for anybody else to do it. If you want to be the change you want to see in the world, right? Exactly. And we've all got power. It's recognizing how much power we have. That's why the government is so incredibly terrified of us right now. They're terrified of Black Lives Matter because we showed them that we have the power to change things. We have the power to rally an entire nation into protesting. They're so scared. (laughs) Yeah. Shaking in their boots. Yeah, they're shaking in their boots. At the end of every episode, I will ask my guests three questions about how they best grab life. So the first is, what is the most incredible and exciting thing you've ever done in your life? I think it was going to Cairo. Uh, yeah. How long were you there for? A month, right? Um, like three weeks almost. Amazing. Yeah. I um, That was, yeah, because I just decided to go. I just, I was like, I'm going. I just put money down. I didn't even look. I like, it was, I just got paid. I didn't even know if I had enough. I was just like, I'm just getting the ticket and I'm going. I love that. And it was, and and on the way back was really exciting as well. Like that entire trip was exciting because on the way back, I mean, I got to see the pyramids. I got to experience a completely different culture that I've never experienced before. Um, I got to experience the underground culture of Cairo as well, which was really, really interesting. Um, and then on the way back, I had three or four hours in Athens and I just went and saw the, um, oh, what's it called? The A- A- Acropolis. Yeah. I went to the Acropolis and I was just like, I'm just going to do this. And I went there, saw that, walked around, saw literally all the remnants of, of Greek mythology come to life um and that was amazing as well so that was yeah that's the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life I think so far okay and number two what is your favorite little everyday thing that just makes you feel so grounded and grateful I think reading nice yeah just picking up my I read a chapter out of my book um every single day and it makes nice. me feel grounded it makes me feel it just put it puts my brain into sort of like perspective it just yeah it just everything I find it really really healing reading I um I often say to my clients 
because people are so busy now, right? I have so many books I want to read and I literally have to schedule in time to read every day. But when you do, it makes such a difference because otherwise you have that added stress of like not doing something that you enjoy. Yeah. And if you schedule in and make time for it, then yeah, like you say, nourishing, healing. Exactly. I think it's just best to like, because we're so busy, it's almost like, yeah, you have to, you have to schedule time. You have to like, you have to schedule time and to be able to do it. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And lastly, what is the next big thing on your bucket list that you can't wait to do? I want to go to, I basically, I want to do an African tour. Sick. I honestly, I want to film it. I want to write about it. I want to, I want to get a group of people together and I want to go over. I want to visit Liberia, Nigeria. Um, I'd go back to Cairo as well. Just start from there. Mali, Sudan, Ghana, Kenya. Uh, like literally I'm intending to do all of Africa for Ghana. <laughs> like that's, that's what I'm wanting to do and I'll have to see how I'm going to do it because I'm even thinking it might be an option of like I save myself and then I also ask I crowdfund yeah I was going to say some kind of funding yeah and I like like literally just think of all these different ways of doing it because I want to talk about how people from the diaspora feel so disconnected like coming back home almost when people Mm. say go back home what does that look like and then actually go there (laughs) travel through and also what does home mean for someone whose lineage has been like so for my mum's side her her mother my grandmother is from um her family was enslaved you know like so it's like I don't even know where the root where did we start (laughs) I don't know (laughs) um so I'd like to find that out like what does that mean for me do I belong anywhere because I got taken away from somewhere along everywhere yeah maybe. yeah maybe that well that's the thing we but the, like because of borders we feel like we have to belong to a specific country when when it actually we all belong we belong to the land and that's everywhere yeah that's a beautiful note to end on I think so yeah where can everybody find you on social media and what projects do you have coming up um just explain a little bit about that um so um you can find me on bush queen zoe um instagram mainly um and bush queen zoe on twitter if you want but that's uh i just rant on there um and also with projects that i'm working on just check out collective action um it's a group of activists doing amazing work at the moment and then just and we're supporting there's a campaign that we've set up um to support uh, refugees in london so it's just raising money for their winter clothes if people could donate we'd really appreciate that um as well as this all-in-one education we're now looking for funding so we're an intersectional educational platform meant for like providing resources for teachers who are wanting to teach like anti-racist um you know anti- homophobic material um so like yeah so all-in-one education collective action check us out and yeah that's it amazing oh my god so thank you so much this was an incredible conversation and I'm sure that so many people are gonna find it 
so useful and eye-opening. Um, and I was just so happy that you were my first <laughs> and that we actually got to talk. Yeah. It's been, been too long. long. Since recording several months ago, Zoe has now changed her name on Instagram. So you can now find her at Bush Queen 101. I hope that you guys enjoyed this thought-provoking conversation and I'll see you next week for a relationship special for Valentine's Day, all about the importance of individualism in relationships and how healing the relationship with yourself is always the best place to start for a happy and vibrant life. Remember to like and subscribe so that you get instant notifications and we'll see you next week. <laughs>